Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. Boring, boring. Hey, one thing the game needs is more people like you. You, you. Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. Here's Saltalamachia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to Baseball Isn't Boring. Here's your host, Rob Bradford. All right, baseball isn't boring because of smart people. So there you go. Because of smart people, we have one with us today, Brian Bannister. Uh, technically, he's called the uh, director of pitching for the San Francisco Giants. I call him the pitching whisperer. Um, the pitching, uh, the person who really, really, put it this way, Brian, the person who likes pitching and likes to talk about pitching and likes to look into pitching. It's, yeah, I there. That's all you need to know, right? Correct. Yeah, I've been force-fed pitching my entire life, four decades now, and I'm glad that I actually like pitching. It, it helps that I'm surrounded by it, inundated, and uh, I happen to also enjoy it. So your dad was a major league pitcher. Did you ever not want to pitch? Like, did you I, ever – were you forced – did your dad say, Brian, you have no choice. You are pitching. He never forced me, and I didn't want to be a pitcher. I Ooh. wanted to be a second baseman more than anything. I wanted to be Dustin Pedroia. And wait, you're not, you're wait, you you want to be Dustin Pedroia? You know, somebody like Dustin. Oh, someone like Dustin Pedroia. Okay. Like Dustin is what I always wanted to be. And I was slower than crap. I was the slowest guy on the field. And John Savage, who's now the the head coach at UCLA, I walked on at USC and he's like, you saw me run. He's like, Hey, can you pitch it all? (laughs) Like, that's all it took. Really? and my second baseman career was over the the day I walked onto the USC campus. You didn't you didn't pitch? Did you pitch in high school? Everybody kind of pitches and dabbles yeah. in it. But yeah. I wasn't a pitcher until I got to SC, and if I wanted to keep playing the game of baseball, I had to pitch. How hard did you throw? Like when you started pitching at USC, uh, I tried out, and I was there on an art scholarship. Ooh. So they they didn't have to give me a scholarship. I was there regardless of whether they took me or not. And uh, I topped out at 85 miles an hour that day. I sat 82, 83. That was that was the beginning of my pitching career. Wow! Did did it fascinate you? The what, what? I mean, obviously, I said you had watched your dad pitch, but did it fascinate you actually once you got into into it? Of of, of like, okay, this pitching thing's kind of cool. I, I always enjoyed it, admired it. I grew up around some of the best pitchers of all time, the Tom Seavers the Brett Saberhagens, guys that had won Cy Young Awards and are Hall of Famers. Uh, I just wasn't good at it. And so it it really was a grind for me. I had to really learn every aspect of it. And I think that's why I relate to and help other pitchers in their own careers is I just start from step one. Like, how does this guy get better and what does he need and how can I adapt to give that to him? What is the best of, of these legends that you're talking about? What was the thing that stuck? And I know that you you know it's, it's a tough question because you get so much of this, but sometimes it's like, oh, I remember this guy told me this, and it sort of stuck with me. You know, I remember sitting 1992 Arlington, Texas, and I, I wrote a Twitter thread about it. 
I sat and watched a bullpen with the legendary Tom House, Kevin Brown, and Nolan Ryan. And Ooh. Nolan was right at the end of his career, and he was still out there on a daily basis trying to get better, trying to learn new concepts, trying to reinvent himself. I mean, this is a guy that has the most strikeouts in the history of baseball, and he's, he's out there in his 40s throwing a football, just trying anything to extend his career and squeeze a little more production out of his body. How old were you? Uh, ninety-two. I was eleven years old. Oh, dude, did you like? Did you fathom what was going on around you? Like, I didn't appreciate the moment, and phones weren't a thing at the time, so there was no way to like, you know, screen cap it or uh, take a nice video of it. So I just soaked it all in. <laughs> I'm sitting on a little metal bench right next to the bullpen mount on the field at, in Arlington, Texas, at two stadiums ago. And it was one of the greatest, you know, masterclass sessions of pitching wizardry and pitching talent all, you know, combined in one session. And I was just sitting there as a little kid soaking it up. Can you imagine, though, Brian, like if if that happened now, because like that was sort of the bare bones. Hey, you know, let's throw a football. No, you know, this this have the leg drive this. And now, obviously, you have millions and millions and millions of different waves of information of coming at you. And it's, it's, it's funny to think back at some of the names that you mentioned, if they had a hold of it, I, it'd be interesting to even see like, like a Nolan Ryan, for instance, like you, you knew a little bit, like, would he have changed at all if he had the information that you guys have now? Yeah. And, and the beauty was in that session, you couldn't have two more polar opposite pitchers style wise in Nolan Ryan, kind of a low drop and drive, you know, 100 mile an hour guy. And Kevin Brown, who had this like tornado twister delivery, throwing heavy sinker balls. You know, now we get into the seam shifted way, crazy physics terminologies. And both those guys were some of the best pitchers of their era. And they pitched in completely different styles. And for me as a little kid, I'm like, well, I guess there's more than one way to be good at pitching. Just watching those two guys throw. It's, it's, it's crazy. So, all right, so this is a perfect segue. I love it. I love it. Nolan Ryan was old when he pitched. <laughs> so he pitched till he's old. So, I, you know, I, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy that you, you came on. We haven't talked in a while. Um, and it's always a fascinating time when, when we do get a chance to talk, at least for me. I don't expect to be fascinating for you, but still, for me, it is. And, you know, I, one of the things that struck me, is when you Darvish signs a six-year deal at 36 years old. And even before that, you know, I had noticed covering the Red Sox, said, oh, man, you know, they have like nine guys who were like 30 and over. And then, you know, then Rich Hill had come in on, the, he's come on the podcast once a week in the offseason. And we've talked about this. But from your perspective, am I just, am I, am I going down a road that is just coincidental or – is baseball accepting older guys more than they did even a couple of years ago? I think you're spot on. I think we kind of overcorrected. We we came out with these aging curves where it said when a pitcher hits 32, 33, you know, physically he starts to decline, too much risk, stay away, stay away. And I think what happened was the smart teams got smart, which is what they do. You know, most teams are run by very, very smart people now. And they just looked around and like, well, why are these old guys out shagging before a game? Why are they standing on their feet? You know, we're we're doing, you know, saunas, cold plunges, 
you know, they're getting massages, they're getting uh, blood work done to find their optimal nutrition and vitamins and supplements. And, you know, what we what we did was we adapted as a sport and realized we weren't really taking care of these guys through their later years of their career. But so many of these pitchers can do things that others can't. And if you can just help maintain their bodies and, and educate them on sleep and, uh, you know, how to travel more effectively and not beat up their bodies, you know, what's what's the optimal time to go to bed window avoid alcohol just all these things that most people ignored you realize that you can actually kind of plateau out the later years of their career and it's not just a cliff drop off and so these guys have a ton of value because they have this experience they don't get sensory overload when you put them out in a big situation they've done it before they go out they make their pitches they're not scared of you know big crowds or the postseason and they just are mentors to the younger guys. So they bring so much to the table and we just weren't taking care of their bodies the way that we optimally could. So that's what I think is happening in the game. But it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I think that you were in the Red Sox organization maybe when John Henry said the famous, you know, the 30-year-old pitchers, you know, comment. And that obviously was stemmed off of John Lester, the John Lester situation. And that was only, you know, seven or so years ago that 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 was said and obviously he's john henry's a smart guy i think that you know you know working for him like they're they're always the red sox we're always looking for sort of the next level of things and that's a, a big reason why you were there can you look back at of, of that time and when, when maybe did this shift i guess is what i'm saying i think you know it's happened in the last couple of years and what's happened is we've also gotten better at taking advantage of gravity in pitching. And, you know, when, when people get old, we all get hunched over. I'm in my 40s now. Like, my, I wake up, my back hurts, my hip hurts, my knee hurts. It's not fun as you get older, and I'm still early on my journey of getting old. Uh, but if you look at the great pitchers, the Roger Clemens, the Pedros, the Maddoxes, they, they either sunk the ball or they had a great changeup or they added a splitter later in their career. And... As you get older, you don't produce as much force. You don't have as much energy. And so instead of fighting gravity with these four-seam fastballs and trying to you know, get the ball to rise, if you just start working with that force more, you can extend your career. You know, Nolan Ryan's the freak, obviously. He, he was still throwing power four-seamers into his 40s. But the majority of pitchers figured out a way to pitch into their late 30s, early 40s, by leveraging gravity a little bit more with their pitch types. And so they they brought all their expertise and experience and and feel to the table, uh, along with all the new training and, and nutrition. And uh, you know, you really just saw them adapt their style to pitch with gravity instead of trying to fight it. And they tacked on another three to seven years onto their career. Is that what Verlander did from afar? I mean, obviously you're not working with him, but do you feel like because you know, he's the guy when he goes to Houston, he sort of there's been a lot of stories written about him embracing this new way of doing things and and listen the results are the results. I mean, it looks like he's he's still trucking along here. Yeah, and he's one of the most amazing hypermobile athletes I've ever seen. I mean, he he does things that if you ask most pitchers to do it, they couldn't do it. He has perfect spin on the baseball. Uh, you know, his knee, his front leg inverts at his knee. Uh, most people would blow out their knee if they just tried to replicate what he does when he lands on the mound. And so he has some natural talent 
uh, along with the incredible work ethic. You know, he reinvented himself. Uh, he went through a little lull in Detroit and then came to Houston. He got way more dedicated to his training and the understanding what he needs to do to prepare. Uh, and then you see all these guys come off of a Tommy John rehab year and they've put so much work in and their body is fresh that they almost get this uh, power boost the next year. And they're, they're in such great shape. Their arms strong, their shoulders strong, and they go out and just put up incredible numbers. And Tommy John isn't the scary thing it used to be. And no, I mean, he was amazing this past year. There's, there's no other way to put it. So, um, I remember having a conversation with you, you know, I don't know, must have been five years ago or something, but we were talking about, and I thought, and I still sort of use this as you, you said, everything's predicated on power, like everything, right? Um, kids, kids now, it's throw harder, hit the ball farther. Um, that's what everything is predicated on power, 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 power. Do you feel like this, like you've sort of hinted at with the older guys, that is not that way, that this is the embracing, hey, you don't have to throw into uh, high 90s in your 40s to be accepted. Um, do you feel like overall this is changing or do you still feel like maybe even the lower le- the lower levels, it's like uh, you're not going to get int- introduced into the door unless you're play- throwing between 95 and 100. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast
giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. The challenging thing is, regardless of how you slice it, the the most valuable component of a hitter or a pitcher is how hard they hit the ball, how hard they throw the ball. And that that's the biggest quality or biggest component of pitch quality. But what we've learned and as we studied the older pitchers that had a ton of success, the Glavins, the Maggs, the Moyers, et cetera, um, they really were able to get into the physics of the baseball and tap into things that made their pitches move like a wiffle ball. And to me, that's one of the most fun things in baseball. You know, we, we all watch Steven Wright be an all-star throwing knuckleballs and having the ball move three times on the way to the plate, like a butterfly or with no spin break three feet to the left. And the reality is the seams on the baseball cause movement. And there's certain combinations that if you, if you just tap into it, uh, create wiffle ball like movement on a baseball. And so as your velo comes down, if you're able to add that into your repertoire, you're able to continue to pitch because you simply have more movement and later movement on your pitches than other pitchers who haven't tapped into it, even if they throw harder. And uh, you talk to these hitters and are like, man, his ball moves so late. <laughs> That's how you can get away with it and really extend your career into your later years uh, by tapping into those alternate types of movement on the baseball. And, and you said, like, I think you said before, like, guys are inventing pitches all the time, right? I mean, so, and I've talked to, you know, we talked, I've talked to a few pitchers this past year about the, the, the embracing of the slider going horizontal more because the seams were slightly different or whatever it is. Um, what is the, what is it, what do you think is the next step here in terms of, it, whether it's inventing new pitches or or prioritizing a new pitch. We've kind of reached this saturation point on velocity. Uh, every team has pushed the envelope so high on velocity that it's not that much of a differentiating factor anymore. Every team has, you know, most of their staff that could throw 97 plus. And so what, what differentiates it is, uh, the decision making uh, that you force upon the hitter, you know, one way I try to explain it is if we were just standing a certain distance apart and I took a bean bag and threw it at you, not that hard to catch. But then if I take two bean bags and kind of throw them in a crisscross pattern at the same time until you got to catch both of them, now it gets a lot harder and it gets even harder if I throw a three at you and you got to try and catch all three. What we try to do on the pitching side now is kind of this visual confusion. Hitters are in the big leagues because they can handle velo because every pitcher in the big leagues has velo now. So they're not there unless they can handle it. But what we're trying to do is really get them to struggle with the visual 3D part of hitting and also with the decision-making. Is the ball a strike? Is it a ball? Uh, should should I launch? Should I not launch? Uh, you know, that is really the fun side of pitching. And I'm actually glad we've kind of gotten to that point because that's more of the art of pitching. There was always an art of pitching, but then we kind of, veered off and just went pure velo for a yeah. long time. And, we, and we've just been going that direction. And now that every team has velo and every hitter in the big leagues 
is there because they can hit velo. You kind of have to come up with alternate solutions to get these good hitters out. Otherwise, they will hit doubles or homers every time they make contact with the baseball because they're so good at what they do. So I think it's been fun to kind of get back to, even though it's at a higher velocity now, you're getting back to the art of pitching. What was the thing that made the velo so high? In other words, it wasn't that long ago when we went to spring training. I mean, I remember a guy named Alan Webster. Alan Webster, when he threw 99 spring training, it was like the best storyline of all time for three weeks. Now everybody does it. Like everybody. So what is the thing that you feel like made it this way where it's just commonplace to throw between 95 and 100? Is it conditioning? Is it biomechanical? Is it What is it? I mean, when you see behind the curtain how many people are supporting these pitchers nowadays, <coughs> excuse me, and not just in season, but around the clock, around the calendar year, uh, they're going to facilities. They're getting world class training and support. They're getting PT work. Uh, they're watching videos on YouTube, Instagram. They're getting info from everywhere on how to throw harder how to train their body better. They're sleeping better. They're eating better. Uh, they're lifting more intelligently. Uh, we're not out running five miles at a clip. We're sprinting. We're doing microdosing, like all these uh, things that are just promoting more athleticism, more velocity. And these pitchers are just responding with velocity because that's what's rewarded in our game. So they all have this mentality that if I want to pitch, I got to throw harder. So they're not... You know, they know they got to throw strikes, but they're just obsessed with throwing harder. And everything they do every day of the year is about throwing hard. And when that's your mentality, you just see these guys, you know, come out and they're throwing five miles an hour harder than the previous year. And it's it's incredible to see just because the training is so good. There's so much good knowledge out there. And there's so much support from both the organizations and outside organizations that are very intelligent and have amazing facilities and technology. And these players are just, you know, better than I ever was or, you know, with better access to equipment and training and knowledge than I ever had. Uh, you know, I might've gotten up to like 93 back. Then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just it's fun to watch how good athletes they become. And at the same time, you know, at a certain point you have to almost dial that back and go, Okay, now we got to focus on pitching and execution and dealing with the realities of getting really, really good major league hitters out because velocity can only take you so far because the the floor of velocity has just climbed so much. So let's go back to the acceptance of older pitchers. It's one thing to have the acceptance of older pitchers of pitchers pitching and, and doing things, but it's also, you know, Rich Hill got an $8 million, $8 million contract one of the biggest yearly contracts that he ever got. Um, like I said, you Darvish, you Darvish signs a six-year deal at the age of 36. This is front offices saying, we're okay with this. We're all right. And I would imagine like you, you, I mean, people, you have conversations with your front office about, hey, do you think this is worth a risk or whatever? Instead of, conversely, Brian, you 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 had just a couple of years ago, I think more than even now. It was uh, we're going to get the the twenty five year old with the crazy spin rate who was the six ERA, and we're going to make him into something instead of having the guy who's already done it and getting older. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think it's there might be a little bit of a shift here, maybe. 
Yeah, analytics, you know, when they hit the scene, then they started in 2007, and, you know, it's just been a tidal wave ever since then. Uh, Before teams even realized what the true signal in the analytics were, you know, there was a time when spin rate was like, the higher the better. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it was all about spin rate, and then you realize, wait a second, this guy has a high spin rate, and he's terrible. And, And so, you know, teams were drafting guys off of spin rate, and there's just kind of been this, uh, you know, journey through analytics for most teams, and and every team is at a different point in the journey. Uh, but ultimately, the guys with pitchability, the guys that are reliable, the guys that have uniqueness, you know, unique deliveries, uh, unique visual deception to the hitters that can really adapt to what the other team's trying to do to them, uh, game to game and month to month. Uh, those are the guys that that truly have value and, and will hold their value, uh, especially if they can come through in the postseason. You know that's something that not everybody can do. And even if you throw money at a young guy, once you get to the postseason, you have no idea how he's going to yeah. respond. And it could take several years, several attempts for that guy to finally get comfortable with it and get over the hump and start producing in the postseason versus a known entity that uh, can go out there and give you what you need in the postseason. Thank you. I mean, thank you. This, and you know, I've talked to many, about a bunch of players, and like we talk about this sort of cyclical because I do think it was, and we've had this conversation with a couple of GMs who've been on about the valuing the clubhouse and that dynamic. I mean, and listen, you know, Rich Hill, you know, friend of the program, and he is, he has some real life experience with. If you're in a postseason game, it's different. It is just different. And being able to function on that mound at that time is something that, like, to your point, you don't know if you can do. And if you are doing it, you should maybe value it a little bit more than saying, okay, well, now we're going to bring in this guy in the fifth inning no matter what. You know, so I think the teams are – I've seen that even in the postseason recently, Brian. Like, I've seen a shift in that. Like, hey, you know what? We're going to ride this guy where – Three or four, you know, yeah, we have obviously examples of 2018 World Series of this happening. The, the, you know, the teams are valuing that more, right? It's just, uh, it's a whole different animal in the postseason because it's a small sample. It's loud. Uh, everybody responds differently, and you don't know how you're going to respond until you actually get there. And even if you've done it at, at lower levels of baseball, you know, when you get all those white towels waving or wherever you're <laughs> at and it's loud, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, inches in the strike zone that make the difference between winning and losing. And some guys just just can't, you know, come through in the clutch until they've done it a couple of times. And you just don't know until you get there. So the guys that can do it and have nerves of steel or just don't care anymore and just go out there and pitch a game like it's any other game in the postseason, they have tremendous value. Yeah. So what is it that we head into 2023? What is the next thing? You show up to camp. Like you're you're looking at all this stuff. Every there's always new stuff. I, I mean, I remember talking to you about new stuff every single year. So heading into 2023, what's the thing that you're looking forward to uh, in terms of diving into, tinkering with, utilizing, whatever? Is there something new out there? I mean, the the guys out here in Scottsdale have been great already. So many of them have already upgraded their arsenals. They're adding new things. Um, I think the big thing is. As as you see more people added to these organizations, and there's there's inc- not we're not to the point where I call it bloat, uh, but there's so many more analysts, there's so many more people involved, 
in decision making, in just that day to day functioning of an organization, that communication and uh, staying on the same page and not stepping on other people's toes. Uh, there's really an art to finding your niche, adding as much value as possible, getting along with the people you work with every day, and uh, really communicating at a very high level to identify what the pitchers need, identify the bigger trends around the league, uh, what other teams are trying to do to you game-to-game, series-to-series, and being able to, in a very persuasive way that's in the best interest of both the player and the organization, sell the players on, hey, we need to make an adjustment here because this is happening, and if we don't adjust, we're going to get killed in this upcoming series. And you know, the game is changing fast with the analytics, with Hawkeye, with just the general intelligence of the people running these ball clubs and the organizations that really fire in all cylinders from a communication and adaptability standpoint really have an edge right now. Do do you get the sense that because a lot of these pitchers now at this point have come up uh, with a lot of this stuff, with the idea of a lot of this stuff, that they're more accepting, you know, of, of, because, you know, like you said, a, a huge part of this is delivering the information and and a lot of some pitchers might oh this is information overload or maybe they're just not able to sort of they want to take it but they aren't able to they just not, don't have that mind where they can use it. Do you get the sense that pitchers are have a better understanding that this is all for the good? Yeah, it, it's funny how it's all evolved. When I got to the Red Sox in in 2014, uh, I didn't know where to get the pitch data from within the organization. And going out and trying to convince people to use these numbers, you know, I was just swimming upstream uh, every <laughs> single day. And I knew they were valuable. It just, you, just like anything, you have to prove they're valuable. And uh, now we're to the point, I call it Zoom dating, uh, just like this. Uh, we jump on all offseason with players and their agents, and, and they go on a date with each organization. And you, you kind of give your pitch on like why this is the place to come. Uh, it's not just like, pick your favorite city anymore it's which which team is going to help me from a synergy perspective make the most money on the flip side of this contract uh you know one i want to go someplace that i enjoy my family enjoys my wife loves uh but i want to get better because i see too many guys coming to places you know having a good year and on the flip side of it making a hundred million dollars that i want that to be me and so you you end up going on these dating circuits in a good way and the more consistent you can produce results for these players and their agents, the more likely they're actually seeking you out and you're not having to go out and kind of like a college football coach recruit them. Uh, they actually want to come to you because you, you keep adding value year over year to all these players with what you can do on the analytics side or the communication side or just customizing programs for them. And these guys are getting paid. So whether it's Kevin Gosman, Carlos Rodon, uh, you know, on the flip side, they're making a ton of money. And so then other guys see that and are like, hey, I, I want to take my shot. Maybe they got, you know, a secret sauce that's different than what I've been exposed to in the past. Is there a guy that, you know, that you've worked with that this has soaked it in all, you know, and there's probably a few of them, but a good example of a guy who sort of like, okay, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And it really translated and really turned things around for them. You know, I think I think at a certain point you can give a guy too much information and they can keep seeking it out. 
so th- there are certain thresholds. I'll just cut off the information and say, you know, you, you're already pitching at your ceiling. It's now just all about consistency and uh, going out and executing. And sometimes you have to literally turn off the fire hose of, of data and analytics. Uh, whereas some guys, it's it's the opposite. You're trying to even get them to come in and sit down with you and just have a basic conversation on some low hanging fruit in their game that is going to let them go out and win five more ball games. You know, I remember uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, you know, uh, just a nice example. Um, he had had some events in the minor leagues where he had hit a guy and, and hurt him. And so he was, he didn't want to throw inside. And one of the biggest unlocks going into the two, 2019 season was we wanted him to throw more two seamers into lefties because he was such a good pitcher, but he was giving up damage against lefties. And a lefty that throws hard should not be getting hit by fellow lefties. And we had to get him over the fear of throwing inside the lefties. And we wanted to add this two seamer that we thought would really play inside on lefties hands. And so there's, there's both this persuasive element, analytical element, and then just kind of, you know, getting in the trenches with them and going, Hey, it's okay. If you hit somebody, it's fine. And I remember Dana, our pitching coach, or we'd use a pitching dummy hitting dummy, uh, would get in there and it's like, if you hit it, it's okay. It's no big deal. And we just had to like get over that fear. And he went out and won 19 games that year. Mm. And so that's, that's just an example of, you know, the, the process of applying analytics is, is different for every pitcher. It all stemmed from just hitting a guy in the minors, huh? Yeah. Sometimes there's these, uh, you know, kind of residual fears that guys have for some reason or, you know, some coach told them one thing years ago in high school or college and it didn't work. So they never want to try it again. And you actually have to kind of unwind like why it was it was pitched wrong or why the execution of the concept was wrong and why you should go out and try it again because it'll really help your game. All right. So one of my favorite questions of you, your favorite pitches. I think I asked this once of you. I think you think right, at that time it might have been Craig Kimbrell's curveball because, you know, you're talking about like a curveball that's in the low 90s. But right now, what are some of your favorite pitches to watch of guys? Yeah, I think the the league has gotten sweeper happy, you know, the horizontal curveball. Yeah. Um, you know, I had so much fun with Chris Sale and Tanner Houck kind of learning the nuances of that pitch, and those were two great guys to learn it from and and help them refine it and develop it. Uh, so you kind of see that as like the the pitch of the month, the flavor of the month in, across the league. Uh, I'm a huge split finger guy. Uh, I love the pitch. Um, you cannot convince me it's harder on the elbow. We've done the studies. I love it. It's the most productive pitch in the history of baseball. And yet, ironically, it's also the least thrown pitch. Uh, so having Kevin Gosman or Alex Cobb or, uh, you know, I got a little exposure to Koji Uehara in Boston just guys that are great split finger guys. It's it's so fun to watch the pitch, and it, it's really when you talk to hitters, it's the pitch they hate the most because it looks like a fastball coming out of the hand, yeah. and then the bottom just falls out of it. So I will always say splitter, and I love splitters. It's not hard harder on the arm. Uh, you know, people continue to believe that, and I continue to believe that's a competitive advantage because I'll keep acquiring guys <laughs> that throw splitters. I'll keep teaching splitters, and it's the best pitch in baseball. Who is some of the best splits in the game right now? You think? I, I think Gosman, uh, you know, it's just it's just incredible to watch him throw. And he he even took his game to another level. He's started using it even more because he used to mix in a change up with us as well. 
but it's it's such a good pitch. And, you know, I, I love the Japanese pitchers that come over. So I'm excited. You know, I had dinner with uh, Senga in the offseason. Uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, just a, in Japan, it's it's a pitch that everybody throws. And yeah. I, wish, I wish the U.S. culture could get there because, uh, you know, people have this general fear about it. And it's such a, a good pitch. And so, you know, w- looking forward to watching some of those Japanese pitchers throw this year. Well, what's interesting is... um. Sawamura for the Red Sox threw it. And when I remember watching his first spring training game, and he was bouncing it about like five feet. But I think it was the ball. Like the ball obviously is a little bit different. So like you have that pitch, but then like it's you have to, okay, now I have to get used to the ball too. So still a good pitch. Great. Um, all right. So I'm just going to, I want you to finish things off with maybe the great, greatest Twitter thread of all time, the David Ortiz story. All right. It was so good. You know, David is one of my favorite players of all time. Just a tremendous human. And, you know, I I have this weird role. I'm going into my eighth, ninth year as a major league coach. And I'm not in the dugout. Uh, You know, I've actually, I'm a pitching coach. I've never been the pitching coach in the dugout for a game in my entire life. So I'm kind of weird that way. Um, So whenever we go on the road, uh, you know, I would be sitting in the locker room just with a laptop open on Baseball Savant or some other site that was just streaming pitch data. And I just sit there and watch the game. And if anything is off, you know, run down to the dugout and say, hey, Eduardo or David Price isn't throwing their changeup enough. Like, let's let's increase the usage, things like that. But, you know, David, he was dealing with, uh, you know, feet, ankle issues. He was he was always Having he's lounging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he just needed to be off of his feet as much as possible. So, you know, get a little BP in and then in general, just stay off of his feet. Uh, so here's me, you know, kind of the guy that nobody knows what my title should be sitting in the locker room all the time. And then here's, you know, David, who's uh, one of the best players of all time. And, you know, just just a hero to me. So I was always intimidated to talk to him, even though he's the nicest guy in the world. And so he'd be on the couch and he was always calling people. And, you know, nor- normally you don't call people during a game, but it- it's David. Like, and he's not, he's not calling people about baseball. He's just having great conversations and he's sitting there. And so this was just a regular thing. He would just call his friends, call his family, just have extended conversations because being a DH is a very lonely life. Yes. <laughs> you go up, you, you get a couple of swings, you keep, see a couple of pitches, and then you go sit down for an hour. You know, it's it's not this glamorous lifestyle. You don't get to play a position. And so he's just on this couch, and every locker room in the big leagues has kind of a square couch set up. And so he'd always just be there across from me. And I just remember, he, you know, he'd have a uh, earbud in, and he'd be just – one time he's just like, hey, hey, hold on. And he just, like, you know, put his phone down, put his headphone earbud down, and just did what he always did. He went out, and I, I'm just sitting there, and – you know, the phone's just still sitting there talking to somebody like, he does. <laughs> and like, I, I'm just watching the TV up in the corner and he, he just goes up, hits a Homer, you know, circles the bases, comes back in and sits down and then he just picks up his conversation again. I was like, that is like, I'm looking around. It's like, did anybody else just see what just happened? This is like the greatest thing of all time. And I, I, at heart, I'm just the biggest baseball nut you know, of all time. There's people that are bigger fans of me, but I'm just a little kid when it comes to great baseball stories. And to be able to sit there, you know, 15 feet away from David Ortiz 
and see what just happened. And I'm like, I, I had to share this with the world. I mean, I was waiting for him to get inducted. And I was like, I got to share this story because oh, it's so good. I've been it's holding so- this in and I, I just, like, this, people need to know about this. It's so good. And I can attest, um, I, he, uh, there was a time where he, uh, in the fit, he grounded out one time and about five minutes later, I got a call. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. Hey, did you, uh, do you run that story yet? Uh, yeah. So, so, oh man, that is, that is, that was epic. That was so good. So good. Um, I'll never forget because, you know, his very last game at Fenway season's over. Like, you know, he had been doing the retirement thing all year. And I just went up to the second floor. You know, there's a little kitchen lounge area above the the training room at Fenway. And I'm just sitting at a little, you know, small table by myself. I, I cracked open a Bud Light or something. And he came right up there and sat down next to me and just started, like, telling stories. And I'm like, you know, who am I to deserve to get to sit down with the great David Ortiz and have a beer moments after his last game? I was like, this this is incredible. And he just treated everybody with so much respect and so much love. And I just I just love the man. He's not only a hero on the field, but off the field. And he's larger than life. It's it's it was a pleasure to be around him all those years. Man, so many good stories. It's awesome. It's it's like you know, I like I love talking with you, Brian, because like all that stuff, like your love of of baseball, and we talk about this, but also just you know, you're you're clearly passionate about just doing stuff you know it's like oh man like, i don't know if you ever get i know spring trainings are early but i don't know if you're like ah like i gotta go to work today like, it feels like you're like you're springing out of bed like ready to roll like this 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 go let's fix some pictures <laughs> let's go it, it, it's still a kid's game and i've had this forrest gump journey through the game and I'm, <laughs> i've been very lucky very blessed but i just try to bring that joy and energy every day and you know, as baseball has gone to more Zoom and more corporate, and you know, I struggle with it a little bit. I just love grabbing some sunflower seeds, staying in the dugout or in the outfield, and just chopping it up with guys and uh, trying to figure out ways to let them enjoy the game more by being better at their craft. And and that's that's what just drives me every single day. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I hope we come on again because you know what, yeah, do it. You are you are the epitome of baseball not being boring. So be wearing those t shirts everywhere. It's gonna and, be great. And Rich and Joe are some of my favorite guys of all time. So. Oh, listen, I, you, I, you just got a book. Yeah, you just you just got a book. Do you remember? Uh, so uh, we had I Ryan Brazier on, and I forgot that he had jumped in the 2018 season um, later. And Joe tells a story in this book about the Tyler Austin fight. Where were you? So you were probably up in the clubhouse for that, right? Whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So, but he talked about the meeting after, about how, like, he was like, you know, hey, their bullpen coach beat some of our outfielders in, and we had this meeting, and that turned, you know, like, everything else like that. It was, like, for for that year, it was a pretty poignant thing about, like, everyone remembers a fight, but, like, sometimes, like, it's, hey, like, this, let's take a check of, like, where we are. I don't know if you remember that or not. So, yeah. I just remember a couple days later, you know, he either went to a Celtics game or a Bruins game. Like, they they kind of put him on the big screen, and people were just giving him a standing ovation. Oh, and here's the thing. We said this, is that 
the first two weeks of the season, he was the least popular guy. Remember, he blew the game at the beginning of the season. Yep. And it's not until he like he punched Tyler Austin, you know that. And by the way, in the book, they the like driving through Times Square a couple of weeks later when the, you guys go to Yankee Stadium, he sees Tyler Austin crossing the street and he tried to get out and fight him. <laughs> Page ninety six. Uh, all right, all right, Brian. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. No pleasure. Thanks for having me.